Howdy, sober family. Welcome to I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye, the podcast where we're learning to love ourselves more than booze. I'm your host, Dana Kroll. I'm a former Army chaplain who developed a toxic relationship with alcohol after leaving the military several years ago. And after inpatient and outpatient recovery and a year staying sober on my own, I relapsed and descended into a rock bottom. Thankfully, in the depths of despair, I discovered the not-so-secret solution to staying sober, finding and contributing to a community. Soon after, I started this podcast as a way to keep myself accountable and to help others in early sobriety. With me, as always, in the studio is my buddy, my spirit animal for sobriety, Al K. Hallfree, and my co-host. I'm excited to welcome Adam Carroll. He's from Vancouver, Canada. He's got lots of certifications in healthy living areas, but especially in breath work, which is the one that he's most passionate about and that we're going to focus on later in the episode. The most important qualification he has today, though, is being nine years sober. Adam ended his drinking career the day after his 21st birthday, but in those 21 years, he survived several lifetimes worth of trauma leading to severe PTSD in his 20s and other challenges, which we'll hear more about in just a minute. And by the today end of today's episode, Adam and I want you to take away some practical breathwork skills that you can use in your day-to-day living to assist with everything from PTSD-related anxiety to ordinary frustrations in adulting. So Adam, welcome to the show, brother. Yeah, I love it, man. Thanks for having me. This is cool. Yeah, tell us about those first 21 years, man. And, uh, yeah. you know, because it's a harrowing story and I'm going to shut up so you can tell it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'll just, uh, I had a pretty normal childhood. Um, when I got into high school, I started getting bullied quite a lot. Um, I was very insecure and I always felt in, uh, very uncomfortable in my own skin. So I was a, a big target for bullies just because I didn't have a male role model in my life and I wasn't really sure how to stand up for myself or what I should do in those types of situations. So, I essentially was just a victim and kept getting bullied. Um, I lived with my mom and she would just tell me to walk away and not engage, which isn't bad advice, but uh, just I got bullied quite a lot. So eventually um, I started smoking weed and drinking. That was something that I found to make me feel a little bit better, a little more comfortable in my own skin. And it got me involved in the community of people who are also doing the same thing. So that gave me a little bit of a sense of community and comfort, just to get rid of the constantly feeling uncomfortable and anxious. then after doing that, I quickly started to sell drugs at the school I was going to uh, in grade eight. So I was like, whatever, 14, 15. Um, yeah, so I started to sell drugs at school. Eventually got caught. I uh, got kicked out of school. And then um, that summer, so I got kicked out at the pretty much the end of the year. That summer, my mom asked me to leave. So I moved. Uh, my dad rented me an apartment. Uh, he would lived in another province, but he rented me an apartment. Um, so I, at 15, I had my own apartment and I bought my own car because I was making decent money uh, selling drugs. So um, this was really fun at the time. I had like the party house, tons of parties. It was really fun at that age at that time. But looking back on it now as an adult, it was way too much freedom for someone that age going through what I was going through to have. Um, Things just progressed uh, quickly from there. So I started selling drugs pretty much full time because I wasn't going to school. So I would just work one of the phones, do all the deliveries. I was selling fairly benign stuff to begin with, just some pills, some weed, um, nothing too crazy. And then I got set up. Uh, so I went to go do a deal. I parked the car. Um, I got pulled out of the car and I got beat up pretty bad. Um, I picked myself back up together, got back to my place. When I got back to my place, there was a voicemail on my phone from my mom. <clears throat> my mom had received a death threat to her home phone on her voicemail. So I went to her place, and there was a police officer, my mom, in the living room. We all listened to the death threat together, which was uh, 
very hard to see my mom listen to that and how uh, upset she got. I was a little bit desensitized to those types of things because it's, it's part of the territory. Like, I can't even count the amount of times I've had death threats, but for my mom to hear it and hear how serious it was and how scared she was, that was hard for me to see and obviously very hard for her to deal with. Um, so the police officer who was there, I had some interactions with in the past. He, his advice to me was just to get out of the province for a while. So that's what I did. I moved to the province where my dad was. Um, but I didn't actually live with my dad. I got a job at Foot Locker and I moved in with a manager there. Her and I became friends pretty quick and I moved in with her. Um, and Foot Locker is a good place to network. So I remember when I was on my way up there, I was planning on just being a normal kid. I was like thinking about going back to school and just like working and try to be a normal 15, 16 year old. Um, but within a month or two of being up there and working at Foot Locker, I, I just missed the adrenaline and the purpose and the community, even though it's a, not a good community to be a part of uh, at the time I thought it was. Uh, so I quickly found out who was doing what I wanted to do and got involved. Um, but where I moved was a much uh, more serious and dangerous uh, environment in terms of the uh, using and selling stuff. So um, I started only selling hard drugs in much bigger quantities than I was used to. But I was very naive and ignorant to the whole game at that age, like I'm 15, 16. Like I, I didn't really understand the gravity of what I was getting into. Uh, also, I forgot to mention actually, so when I was uh, living in my own apartment uh, back in Vancouver, I started doing steroids, cocaine, and uh, smoking cigarettes all around the same time. Uh, and I've made, I've, this is my fault, but a, a couple of the shows I've been on in the past, I've not intentionally, but it's come off. Uh, come like when I've listened to them, I, it's come off that I was more of a drug dealer than a drug addict. So I want to make it very clear that I was a raging drug addict also. I was a drug dealer too, but that was basically just to support my drug habit. Like I don't want people to think that I was just a drug dealer. Like I was a severe drug addict and it was very hard for me to get sober. <clears throat> I just want to, that's something I haven't mentioned. So I just want to make sure that I, I make that clear. Uh, yeah. So uh, I was working one of the phones up there. Um, in the other, other province, and I was I worked the phone for like a year. Uh, just then you kind of uh, the way they do it is like there's a, a guy, and then there's three people under him. Those three people are in charge of certain areas, so you kind of just do your thing that way. So I had my own little area, and I was getting used to all the repeat customers, and you kind of get familiar with the times and who's going to call when and where you're going to go and stuff. So I was getting in a pretty good groove of it, and I mean it's pretty easy. It's actually probably the easiest job in the world. You're just driving around handing people stuff. It's like super easy, but um, so I was about 16. I, I know I was, I was 16 when this happened. So after that year, um, we, we would always go to the club pretty much every night or at least like four or five times a week. <clears throat> and uh, we'd have the VIP section quartered up and a lot of attention from women and all the guys respected us. So that made me feel really good and like powerful and feared. And I know that's a weird thing to say. And I would never want anyone to fear me now, but back then, being that insecure, bullied kid that I was, I really liked that people were afraid of me. Um, yeah. I know that's probably weird for people to hear, but... Uh, it makes sense to me. Yeah, I was the classic case of, like, hurt people hurt people. Like, I, I was bullied, and then I became the bully, which I, I feel bad about, but, I mean, I've worked my way through that now. Um, so, yeah, the, kind of at the end of that year, I was 16... We were at the club, there was a big fight broke out, and uh, I remember we were just in the middle of the fight, kind of, I'm sure you can relate to this with being in the military, when your adrenaline's pumping, you don't really feel as much pain as you would if you didn't have that, 
So I uh, right. was just fighting some guy, and then I remember I couldn't feel my left leg, and I fell down to the floor. Um, I had a knife sticking out of my leg, like, up high in my hip. I went down, like, to grab it and pull it out, and someone ran over and, like, stopped me from doing that because I learned later about, like, arterial bleeds and nerves and how dangerous that is if I was to actually do that. So I got thrown on the back of a pickup truck and drove to our safe house where um, one of the guy's girlfriends who was a nurse met us there. She got the knife out of me and stitched it up, gave me antibiotics. Uh, that was probably the most painful thing I've ever been through. <laughs> that is a brutal thing to go through. Uh, like, I'll never forget that. I felt like I was going to pass out. Yes, I can only imagine how much pain. Wow. So that was like on the verge of losing consciousness for sure. Uh, so after that happened, I was terrified obviously that was a big like reality shock for me so i uh came back to vancouver for a couple months let my leg heal up because it was hard to walk and it was like uh it took some time to heal because it was a pretty deep wound um and then after it healed i just went back to where i, I was i missed the same thing the community and my friends and just the the purpose that it gave me and I was still really insecure and had no sense of self, so I really attached my identity to being a drug dealer and drug user and hanging out with those people. Like, that's who I thought I was. That's what I thought my life was. So, um, yeah, I flew back up there, and when I went back up there for the second time, I had a, a reputation this time. People knew me, and there was younger guys who were looking up to me who were newer than I was, so I moved up the ladder a little bit, and I became like a a district um, guy, so I was in charge of the three guys this time, so I'd just make sure they had what they needed, and then I could kind of do my own thing, so it was actually a little bit easier and much less dangerous. Um, so I did that consistently for like four years, but in that four years, a lot of different things happened. Um, so the first one is when I flew back up for the second time, I brought a friend with me who I'd known since childhood, and he wanted to get involved in what I was doing, so I brought him up with me. He stayed at the safe house with us. He started working uh, under me, uh, doing one of the phones like I did when I first started. Uh, and he did that for about between six months and a year, and everything was fine. Uh, he was doing well, even though that's a weird thing to say about drug dealing. But um, And eventually, uh, one night, I had been up for about two days on a bender, um, just like strung out, not slept in two days, haven't eaten, feel super weird, like you're totally off in terms of your mindset and I get this call at like two in the morning and it's him but he's freaking out I could tell like his just the sound of his voice I knew something bad happened so I hopped in my truck and flew over to his place as fast as I could when I got there he was sitting on the edge of his building with a white t-shirt that was just covered in blood uh, so I remember I ran behind him sat behind him and kind of like had him in my lap and I was holding him and I could kind of feel his chest like his, his uh, breasts were pretty shallow and he was gasping for air. But at first, when I got there, I was talking to him and he was able to talk. He would talk back to me. But then after like a minute or two, he couldn't talk. I could see that he was trying to talk, but he couldn't talk. And then I think like another minute or two later, someone had already called an ambulance and so that was already on the way. Uh, but another minute or two later, I remember feeling like the, the rattle in his lungs. And then I just felt him go like completely limp. So like he took his last breath and just mm -hmm. passed away in my arms. And when I was like I was uh, been doing cocaine for two days and then to have a dead friend in your arms when you're strung out like that, I was like, the, it was the, like, I look back on it now and it was very traumatic, but I didn't even know that it was traumatic then. I was just confused. Like I was like, I, like when I, I, I couldn't comprehend what was happening. I was just like, what? And I, the, this is the part that I like, 
I've done a lot of work on myself and I, I try not to feel guilt and shame about anything I've done in the past, but I had to leave them because I was going to get arrested if I did it. So I had to leave them and I know people there who were going to take care of them and the ambulance was going to come, but I wasn't able to like see him off to the ambulance and <clears throat> that was tough. Um, but it's just the reality of the way my life was back then. So after that happened, um, I would like to say that I changed my life and turned it around then, but that, that wasn't enough. So I uh, kept doing what I was doing, but I, this, the, the main traumatic event that got me to get sober is this last one that I'll touch on now. So I was about 19 years old or early 20, somewhere around there. Um, and I went to go resupply one of my guys, but I was getting set up and I didn't know that obviously. Um, I remember getting out of my car, turning a corner around the building. And then that's the last thing I remember until, uh, being in the back of a trunk. I had something over my face and my hands tied behind my back the whole time. So I kicked a little of the trunk a couple of times to see if I could get it to open, but I passed out again. So I found this out way later, but I had, uh, fractured my skull and my brain was bleeding. I was losing like a lot of blood and I was going in and out of consciousness like a lot because I don't remember very much. The next memory I have is being tied to a chair, uh, like with my hands behind my back and uh, something over my face. And they kept uh, like pistol, like slamming a pistol into the side of my head and pulling the trigger, but there was no bullets in the gun. So like every time I heard that click, I was like convinced that I was going to die. It wasn't that like I thought I was going to die. I was like, I remember like being like a hundred percent sure that I was going to die. And that's a trip. Like knowing that you're going to die. Like, like when you actually like comprehend that and come to terms with it, like, like there's, there's nothing I could do. Like, this is it. Like, and I, I really accepted that. And then they were taking a knife and cutting across my chest. So I have a bunch of really big scars on my chest. So I got a big tattoo to cover that up. <clears throat> and then uh, during this whole experience I had, uh, so a near-death experience, um, what I had was, like, I was in the chair, and then all of a sudden I had this, like, third-party perspective where I was in the top corner of the room looking at myself from outside of my body, and I did that for a while, and it was kind of, like, peaceful, and I felt more peaceful than being in the chair, definitely, um, and then after that I kind of went into this, like, light place where it was just really bright, and there was, like, lots of colors, there was lots of shapes, I was interacting with beings and stuff. And I, I thought that that was me dying. Like, I remember thinking in the moment that, like, this is, like, I'm going to heaven or wherever wherever I'm going. Like, this that's where I'm going. And then I had this, um, like, really vivid vision of my grandfather. And I remember he just, like, put his hand on my shoulder. And he told me, like, you're not ready yet. And then I fell, like, like literally fell back into the chair. Like, I felt, like, this sensation in my stomach. And then, like, I felt like I hit the chair. And then I was back in the chair, like, conscious, back in, like, normal life. So that was like a trip still like still to this day that's hard to even comprehend um so after that happened then i uh healed up for six months which was a long process of hospital scans and uh like therapy sessions and stuff uh and then after that i, I told the guys that i was done like i'm not doing this anymore that was as far as i'm willing to go like i literally almost died like i'm, I'm not doing this anymore and then after i healed was when my 21st birthday came around so given what I've been through, they threw me a big party um, at the club. It was really fun. There was tons of people there. I had a good time. But being the guy I was back then, some some guy looked at me weird, and I just decided to punch him in the face. And then I'm in a giant fight, and I'm getting thrown out the back of a club. And 
then I was in the back of a cop car and I spent uh, my 21st birthday in jail. And then um, I remember being in the jail cell. I wasn't actually that drunk or high uh, this time. So I had a lot of time to think and being alone in a jail cell is a pretty good place to do some thinking. And uh, I remember when I was in the jail cell, I just, I, I was very clear that like my next steps when I got out of the jail cell were going to be one, call my mom, be completely open and honest with her about everything that I've been doing and then tell her that I want to come home. And then I was just like praying that she was going to let me come home because I didn't know what I was going to do if she wouldn't let me come home. Um, <clears throat> my mom's always been like my biggest supporter. So that's what I did. I got out of jail the next day. Yeah, she, I got the next plane ticket out of there. That, the last time I used was February 9th, 2013. So the day after my 21st birthday, I've been sober ever since, but the first two years of my sobriety were heavily medicated. Um, Cause when I got back to Vancouver, I went to see a neurologist, psychologist, and another one, um, but they all gave me a litany of acronyms of diagnosis, like a severe TBI, severe PTSD, BPD, suicidal depression, all of that stuff. So for the first two years of sobriety were really tough for me. Well, I guess this is probably where we can get to the post-traumatic stress thing. Um, with So the, the email that I left open, I would get a death threat on that every couple weeks like a pretty serious one where they wrote my address down. They knew where I was like, and I knew there was like, for sure there was people who were going to kill me if they ever seen me. But the fact they knew where I was really freaked me out. So I was totally paranoid for that first year or two years. Like I, I would rarely leave the house. Um, I uh, was very hypervigilant. Like I, I wouldn't go to the grocery stores, the mall, anything like that, where there's crowds of people like this not happening. And even now to this day, there's still certain places that I avoid because even though it's been 10 years, like I, I still don't know how people would approach that or think about it. So I still have to live my life that way in a sense. Um, but yeah, the hypervigilance part is a big, a big thing. Um, and I had nonstop panic attacks like every night for, it felt like the whole two years, every night I was having a panic attack even with the medication. Like I was on the medication to stop panic attacks, but they would still come and uh, I would just have to fight through it, which was rough, like super rough. Uh, not being able to sleep and being depressed and the panic attacks was just like, I, I thought when I got sober, things would get better. Uh, and they, they did eventually, but initially they got way harder and worse for me. Like I, I had two suicide attempts when I first got sober. I don't need to go into the specifics really, but I was just in a lot of pain and I was watching my family be in a lot of pain as well with what I was going through. And I couldn't think of anything other, or couldn't think of anything else to do uh, in that situation other than just to end my life and get everybody out of pain. So I had two suicide attempts separated by about like a year. Um, I wasn't successful with either one of them. So thank God for that. Cause I would have really regretted that with the way my life is now. Um, but yeah, so that's that's the first two years of my sobriety, uh, and ever since then, I've just got more involved with the program, and I got certified as a breathwork therapist. And ever since then, every year, my life has just been slowly getting better, and I've been learning more and more about the body, the brain, the soul, um, and then just like all the things that I'm interested in. Like right when I got sober, I got certified as a trainer and a nutritionist, and then I've just been racking up other certifications. I just really. Uh, I have that uh, addictive personality, obviously, so I just channel that in a good direction now and just try to learn as much as I can and help as many people as I can. So I'm addicted to those things now, which 
I think is a good thing. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's like kind of the wave tops of all the traumatic things that I've been through. But then, so if we go into post-traumatic stress, I have a couple things uh, I like to say. This is my opinion, but you can let me know what you think because we have very similar, um, uh, similar paths with this stuff. So since I was diagnosed with traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress at the same time, I learned a very interesting thing. So if anyone out there who's listening to this has both, it's a weird thing, but uh, post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury have 13 recognized symptoms of both, but there's like an overlay of like 11. So if you have post-traumatic stress, my point is like it gets very blurry. Like they can't tell me if it was post-traumatic stress or TBI because the symptoms are so similar. Um, So I I had both and I, I, it's pretty clear that I definitely did have both, but I think some people could maybe have one and not the other. Like the, the diagnosis process of that is kind of weird. Like, uh, and then also the way they label it. Like I've learned um, through my recovery journey, the way you talk to yourself and the, the narrative of your life and like the words you use, the way you talk to yourself, the way, the way you identify yourself is really important in how you see yourself and ultimately how your recovery is going to go. And when I, first got diagnosed I identified with all of those labels that I was given and that just kind of put me like in the in the victim mindset like why is this happening to me this sucks I can't do anything about it like all that stuff but now I look at it much differently so like I don't like the d on the end Uh, I don't call it post-traumatic stress disorder I just call it post-traumatic stress because I don't think it's a disorder Uh, an analogy would be well like even with my own life all the traumatic events that I went through it makes sense to me that my brain and body would have stress and anxiety associated with that. That doesn't seem abnormal. If your body gets a cold and you get a fever, that's normal. If your body gets a cold and you don't get a fever, that's a disorder. So I don't see post-traumatic stress as a disorder. And also something that is really never addressed, or I've never heard it addressed, but I think there's actually like a really beautiful side to post-traumatic stress. And that's like the growth that can come from it. Like for me, like I had post-traumatic stress. Through my post-traumatic, post-traumatic stress, I found my post-traumatic growth through breath work and all the things I've been doing, like uh, processing my trauma and letting the emotions out and learning more about myself, becoming a more self-aware human being. And then through my post-traumatic growth, I found my post-traumatic purpose, which is to help other people just the same way I was helped. So I think like the way you look at things has a huge impact on your life. And I think that's very understated and undervalued. So once I started to think about things that way, that put the power back in my hands and I felt like much more like excited and in control of my future. I was like, okay, like I'm in control of this and there are things that can help me and I can choose what I want to do. Like I felt like uh, I just felt calmer and like more at peace knowing that like I'm in char- I'm in charge and like I decide what I'm going to do not just like what other people tell me I'm going to do. Well, I love your term post traumatic purpose and I may just name the episode that because uh that is a great way to reframe uh the whole idea of disorder. I had a counselor and he would always say it's not post traumatic stress disorder, it's post traumatic stress because your body is reacting 
in a normal way to an abnormal set of circumstances was the way that he put it. And so, yeah, of course your brain is doing wacky things. It's because you've been placed in a situation where a brain is not supposed to be placed, like like nah. being put in the trunk of a car after you got hit across the back of the head, being you know taped to, or being handcuffed to a chair and having this out of body experience all before you're 21 years old, by the way. But the theme of death in life, like for me as a chaplain, it was being around people who were either dying or newly dead or people who were with people who, who had just experienced losing their friend in their arms like that. And there are people like me and soldiers and sailors, airmen and Marines and Coast Guard service members and first responders out there who might be listening thinking, well, gosh, you know, I've had these experiences, but it doesn't measure up to that. It doesn't matter. You can have post-traumatic stress in your life. It doesn't have to be combat related. It doesn't have to be, I was in organized crime and was, you know, almost died. And what I loved about what you said, Adam, is that you can create some purpose out of that and it requires rewiring your brain. But the point was, I wanted to tie it back to what you said about it's the way you speak to yourself. Because for, for me, throughout all of those things, you know, it was like, here I've had this experience and like, well, I'm not, a, well, it wasn't that bad for me. I was just with these guys that experienced this stuff. And um, so that was kind of like how I talked to myself about my trauma. My trauma was like being with people and having like this and, and watching and suffering, watching people and sitting with them while they suffered and never really addressing my own suffering and all of that. And so through all of that, it's like I've talked to myself and said, I don't deserve to feel a certain way. So yeah. before I talk too much about myself, I just wanted to say like, I think, you know, for any listeners who, or or viewers that like you don't have to have those types of things, but you can have trauma and then you need to repurpose it. Yeah. And so would you talk to us more about that, that idea of post-traumatic purpose with the way that you learn to speak to yourself in your 20s? Because you're, you're 30 now and you've been sober nine years. Lots of certifications, lots of training, but lots of hard work. It's not just, well, you know, I... You know, I came out of the hospital and then I kind of like said, well, I'm going to do better. And then I did better. No, it was like, it, I'm sure it was like. I uh, wish it was like that. <laughs> yeah, it, I'm sure it was a grind to say the least. So tell us more about throughout your 20s, how you established uh, post-traumatic purpose. And um, if you would lead us towards breath work eventually so we can have an experience of one of the things that you're most passionate about. And one of the ways, one of the things that you've done to help rewire your brain and to help repurpose things. Yeah, for sure. So um, I'll, I'll work my way to that. But when you were uh, just said what you said, I had a couple thoughts. So please one, like uh, the worst thing that ever happened to you is the worst thing that ever happened to you. Yeah. So comparing yourself to me or to Dana, like, it doesn't make sense. Yep. Like if you, if the worst thing ever happened to you is that your dog died, then that's like super traumatic. Like that's just as traumatic as what I went through because everybody's perspective is different. Everybody has a cup, but everybody's cup is a different size. And eventually your cup's going to get full and that's when you get post-traumatic stress. And then you can poke holes in the cup to alleviate some of the, the water and let it drain out. So those would be like learning some coping mechanisms of which training and breath work and all that stuff would be one. Um, so everybody has a different size cup and everybody can tolerate a little bit different amounts and stuff. So I think that's an important thing to note because even though we all know we're not supposed to compare each other ourselves to people, but like humans, like we do anyway, you know, like it's, even though you know, you're not supposed to, you still do. Um, so that's an important point, I think. And then also one thing that was explained to me that really helped me, um, find forgiveness and, uh, some compassion for myself is that. 
uh, like the quote is like in order for a tree's roots or no, in order for a tree to reach heaven, it's, it's roots have to touch hell. Uh-huh. So I, the reason I think I had post-traumatic stress is obviously because of the trauma I went through, but also that I, I could like, I couldn't believe based on the way I was raised by my mom. Like my mom raised me to be this person, like the nice, happy, helpful person that I am now. She didn't raise me to be the way that I was. So I, I couldn't believe the things I did and the people that I hurt. And I, I, I like that. Mm. I think that's where post-traumatic stress really comes in is like where you see or do something that you never thought you could. And it's something so bad that you can't even comprehend. And that's, I, I had to kind of learn that, that like the, one of the quotes is like the line between good and evil goes through every man's heart. But you could like the, the line gets blurry sometimes and, you have to understand that any human given the right circumstances and environment is capable of doing the worst things in the world. It's not so much that you're a bad person, but it's just that you were put in an environment where the only thing you could do was that. And then trying to make sense of that, your head is tough. So what I did to start changing the narrative was when I started to do breath work. So, um, but when I first got in the program, got through the first 12 steps, that really helped me like address my psychological and character defects, but my soul and like my spirit, like my heart, the, the love part of myself was just not there. Like I was numb. Like I, I was like, I didn't feel emotions. I was completely numb. Uh, so breath work is the, the, the tool that I use to help me tap into my subconscious mind and heal from past trauma, but also just become more self-aware. So I did my first breath work session with my mentor at the time. And I've always been a very skeptical person. So uh, I've heard, I've heard this, I'd heard about it before, but it sounded ridiculous to me. And I was like, I don't, I'm not going to try that. I don't, can't see that working. But my mentor was a guy who I really respected. um, And since he told me about how his first experience went and he was a breathwork therapist, I did my first session with him and it was amazing. I did 45 minutes. Breath work and then about 15 20 minutes of a meditation. And after you've done the breath work, you kind of just like fall into the meditation. And when I did that, I similar to the near death experience, I, I felt like I left my body. And uh, I have this really big attachment to my grandfather because everything always seems to come back to my grandfather. But um, when I went into the meditation, I uh, spent time with my grandfather because he died when I was really young. I never got to say goodbye or spend too much time with him. So I felt like I actually spent time with them and like I got to say goodbye and it was like a very profound, like emotional experience. And I was crying my eyes out. It was, I think that was one of the first times I'd cried in like a really long time. And uh, when I got up from that, I, I you stood up pretty slowly because you get a little lightheaded and stuff. And I took the eye mask off and I just looked at the, my friend, the, my mentor, and I just, I just, I looked right in his eyes. I was like, "What the f was that? Like, <laughs> that's even possible? Like, that's crazy." And you're like, "What?" And then I've got affirmation of that from everyone that I do it with, because usually the same, same answer comes up, or the same uh, response comes up after the session. But basically, like, breath work is a tool to create stillness. When you find a sense of stillness, you find a sense of oneness. So the sense of oneness with you and all the other humans in the universe, how we're all on the same frequency, we live on the same planet, all that stuff. And then once you find a sense of oneness, you find a sense of connection. When you find a sense of connection, you find love. And to me, love is God. So I feel like if I'm operating from a place of love and my heart is open and I want the best for people and I'm behaving in a way that's in accordance with my values, 
I think that that's God's will for me and the way I'm living my life now and what I do on a daily basis. I feel like uh, I'm trying. Uh, it's hard. It's not something that like comes naturally to me. But if I'm consistent with my breath work and all the work on myself, I'm able to have my heart open and not judge people and just like come at everything from a place of love and like openness. So one thing I've done uh, over the last couple of years is try to disassociate from my body and my brain and understand that I'm, I'm neither of those things. I'm the conscious awareness. I'm like, so I call it loving awareness, but I, I'm the awareness of the body and brain that's going through these set of experiences called life. So I'm not my body and I'm not my brain. I don't identify with the, the labels that I've been given or being a muscular personal trainer, whatever people want to call me. Like that's, that's part of who I am, but that's not actually who I am. Like I'm, I'm the awareness of that. I'm the, I'm, I'm watching this person, Adam, go through these experiences. So that for me was a big perspective shift because now uh, I'll catch my brain in a loop where I'm being negative or I'm doing something I, I shouldn't be doing, like thinking negatively or judging someone. And then I'll just recognize that and I'll be like, oh, my brain's doing that stupid thing again. And for me, that really helps like take the pressure off. I'm just like, oh, okay, like, but to get more into the specifics of breath work. So there's many different types of breath work and there's many different modalities you can try. But um, a, a session that I would do normally for someone just starting, you either have like meditation music, some sort of uh, frequency meditation music, and then you do a specific breathing pattern for around four, you can do it for longer, but about 40 minutes and then 20 to 30 minutes of the meditation. So anyone who's listening to this podcast, if you want to get a breathwork session in, you can DM me and just mention that you watch this podcast and I'll give you the first breathwork session for free. And I do do them over Zoom. So if you're not in Vancouver, we can still do the breathwork session over Zoom. I always like to do the first one for free just to show people how powerful it can be. And if you don't like it, you never have to do it again. But the offer is out there for anyone who wants to try. Some practical tools while I'm thinking of it. Um, just dive into like the science quick if that's okay. So you have two branches of your nervous system. Uh, you have sympathetic and then parasympathetic. So sympathetic is fight or flight. That's the stress state. Parasympathetic is rest and digest. That's where you're calm and sleeping and relaxed. So most people spend 20, well, I don't know the hours, but like most of their time in a sympathetic state and way too little time in a parasympathetic state. And when you're having a panic attack or anxiety, you're in a sympathetic state. So, or sympathetic nervous system state, I guess. <clears throat> so the quickest way to change that um, is a specific breathing pattern called a physiological sigh. So it's uh You'll see your dog, if you have a dog or if you look at a dog, uh, all mammals do this naturally before they lie down or when they're trying to relax. So it's two inhales through your nose and then a forceful exhale through your mouth. Okay. So it looks like. So the two inhales through your nose are to maximally inflate the alveoli in your lungs. Those are the sacs that fill up with air in your lungs. And then the exhale is to offload all the carbon dioxide. Okay. So if you, if you put your tongue on the roof of your mouth and push your tongue on the roof of your mouth and then inhale through your nose twice, like hard, so you like fully expand your lungs and then big exhale. And if you just repeated that for like a minute or two, you're, so they call it like your uh, internal level of arousal. So like if you're super stressed, then you're like way up here, it'll bring your level of arousal back down to like a normal state. Um, so that's something that I've used in the moment 
in the middle of a panic attack and it's worked for me. It's, it's, it's not like a, a Xanax where you're going to feel super like medicated and like chill, but it definitely brings your heart rate down, brings your level of alertness down and brings you back down to like not freaking out. Like it, that definitely helps. And I've used that uh, many times. Is it common to feel lightheaded when you, when you do it? Um, I'm just thinking of myself and usually when I breathe a lot, I can tend to feel a little bit lightheaded or does that mean you're not exhaling enough? No, that's so with most of the breath work and even the physiological side, it's normal to feel some tingling in your fingers and your face can go numb or like get lightheaded. That's all pretty normal and not okay. should be alarmed. Like, but when we do like a real, the breath work session, when you're doing it for 40 minutes, that'll, that's when you're like people, I, uh, I won't say any names, but I, I work at a couple of recovery centers doing breath work. And one time I went to a recovery center, there was like, 10 dudes I was doing it with and uh, one of the guys during the session, everyone's going through the session, the music's playing. He sits up and just starts howling like a wolf, like just like <laughs> howling. Like I, I was like, what? Like I was like, I didn't really know what to do. Like the, no one taught me anything about that in the course. So I was just like, what am I supposed to do right now? Al wants to ask if anyone has ever hooted like an owl. <laughs> there we go. I should have said hooted. That would have been good. Okay, that maybe that'll be me. Maybe I'll be hooting like Al. <laughs> Not yet. Um, yeah, no. And then um, this is where I used to start to get really skeptical and kind of lost. When people use the word vibration and frequency, that can turn a lot of people off who don't understand this sure. type of stuff. And not even necessarily understand, but it's just you have a preconceived notion of what that is. Yeah. And it sounds a little like woo-woo spiritual. It's, it's like, that's how I used to feel about it um, until I learned more about it and actually experienced it myself. But most people in day-to-day -day life are living at a low vibration or a low frequency. So a low frequency or low vibration looks like your psychological issues. So your anxiousness, fear, shame, those are all low vibrational states. So with breath work, and there's some other things you can do too, but specifically for breath work, you're raising your vibration so you can quiet your analytical mind, tap into your subconscious mind, and remember who you actually are and where you come from. And then what I mean by that is what you actually, or who you actually are is loving awareness. You're not, you're not your body. You're not your brain. You're not this person with all these labels and all these issues. You're the awareness of that person going through those experiences. And then also the higher vibration when you get to that point you look at things a lot differently like that through breath work uh so what i didn't mention actually i did that first session after that first session i did a session a week for a year and over that year i made more progress on my uh post-traumatic stress and all that stuff than i ever have I, I still do breath work to this day but that year doing it every week i would i would uh have a huge emo emotional release pretty much every time I would, I found like I had some resentment issues with uh, some people in my life for quite a while. But once I did breath work for long enough and I started to like tap into the love and start to learn to love myself again and not identify with all the experiences and labels that I was given, I was able to find like the empathy and compassion for myself. And then also for these people in my life that needed me at that time, but I couldn't be there for them just because of, the resentment issues that I had. <clears throat> so that was a big thing, but I think uh, I had a hard time believing it was even real. Like I did it and I experienced it, but I remember like, I was like, there's no way that's actually going to happen again. And then the next time I did it, it was like the same thing. And it's just, it, it was really shocking to me how powerful it can be. Um, 
I'm glad that you said all that as you, because I think that's the a natural reaction for you know, because I'm thinking, like, I'm open to anything at this place where I, I'm at in my life. I, In fact, I'm so fascinated to learn about different things that I wish I would have known when I, w- when I was a chaplain and when I was trying to help people. You know, the Army teaches tactical breathing, which is where you're like t- – it's, it's very similar, I think, to what you just talked about. It's a way to re- – it's like almost like a refocusing technique. It's like if you're in the middle of a, a very stressful situation, you take – you, know, you take a couple of deep breaths and I'm probably butchering the technique, but it was, but it, in my memory, it's very similar where you're breathing quickly and you're just trying to oxygenate your, your blood so that you can refocus and get your, get your blood flow back to your, like your decision-making part of your brain and the prefrontal cortex and all that kind of stuff that I'm going to pretend like I know what I'm talking yeah. about. I don't, but the, the importance of breath to just a human life being, you know, it, it, I, th- I think anybody in any religious or spiritual or non-spiritual, just even just clinical or physiological tradition would uh, agree that, you know, breathing is essential to life and that regulating breath seems to help. Like, you know, we've all experienced even just an argument or something that when, you know, we say take a deep breath for a reason. Uh, So we probably shouldn't be so freaked out that this is super woo woo uh, that, I mean, we all breathe and we do better when we breathe better so I think if anyone's listening and thinking, well, maybe it's just the power of suggestion. Maybe, of course, Adam had that experience because he went in expecting to, you know, he was told he was going to experience this sort of thing. So I'm glad, you know, you know, you talked about some of those um, misgivings that people might have about it. And I'm certainly excited to, to try it. I just always, I overanalyze everything. So my brain is going to be, doing, even if I experience something great, I'm going to be going, well, that's just because you expected you. It's not really real. Like I tend to sabotage everything great that I experience. Yeah, so, yeah. It, it's amazing what uh, can happen if you just put yourself out there and be a little bit vulnerable. It's pretty crazy, man. Man, we covered a lot of ground in this episode. I feel like if uh, a listener or viewer leaves this and, and thinks, what did I just learn in the last however many minutes and they can't remember something, I would be shocked. I wrote down, I've taken all these notes. If you see me looking away, it's like I'm scribbling furiously <laughs> these things that Adam's teaching. Less some, some things that I knew already that I needed to be reminded of and some things that I, um, that I did not know. Uh, so Adam, thank you so much for joining us, for talking to us about post-traumatic purpose. And I mean, wow, what a story coming from, uh, I mean, 21 years, the first 21 years of your life, just some insane, like you could write a book or a movie about this kind of stuff too. Uh, now you're rewriting the script and doing some pretty uh, impressive things, uh, all all girth of biceps and triceps aside. I mean, just the your heart uh, and your heart for people, your heart for yourself and your heart for life are, are just all, all huge. And, uh, I, I want to thank you for being here. So again, if you would like to connect with Adam on Instagram, he is at addict to athlete method. That's the number two addict to athlete method. He's also on Facebook and, uh, make sure to message him, uh, for that free breath work session. If you'd like to message me on Facebook as well, please do. Uh, because I would like to add you to the, I kissed alcohol goodbye secret squirrel, uh, Facebook group where you can connect with other members of the audience and guests and uh, just fellow like-minded people who are on this uh, countercultural sober path, even if you're just sober, sober curious and you want to join in and ask questions and get connected. I really think that one of the key words that Adam said earlier was the community. And we have found community in the Instagram uh, sphere, which is about the last place I ever thought I would say, yay, Instagram. But I mean, I'm telling you, it's same here, man. A lot of people's lives. It's how I've met people like 
like Adam. And um, so hit us up uh, there either on Instagram. I'm at I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye, and he's at Addict to Athlete Method. So Adam, if you had one last thing to say for somebody who's had a legitimate like near-death experience like you were had brain bleed and like it's a miracle that you did not die what would you say to people having had that experience uh to our listeners what's the one piece of advice that you would give them based on your um amazing set of life experiences no pressure ready go (laughs) uh that's a really good question man actually i've never uh been asked that before but i think i have a pretty good answer so uh, when I had that tra- big traumatic event when my brain was bleeding, I actually, when I went to the hospital, I coded. So I did actually pass away for a little while, like my heart stopped. So I, I think I have actually experienced death, I think. Um, it's hard to say, wow. but I mean, like uh, objectively, that would be true, I guess. But one thing I can say is that uh, with going through that experience, I realized that life is a limited time offer and life is an occasion. So tomorrow is not guaranteed, and if you have things you're thinking about doing or things you want to do, the time is always now because you never know what's going to happen, and I approach my life like every day is going to be my last now. So people look at me, and I, I get this almost every day, like, why do you why are you up so early? Why are you working so hard? Why are you doing all the things you're doing? And I approach my life like my life's going to end tomorrow because it almost did, and uh no matter what it is that you're putting off, I would uh, do that thing right now. Oh, man. What a great way to end this episode. And uh, so whatever it is out there, sober family, that you've been looking to do, do it. And if you're sober curious and you want to give this thing a try and you're thinking maybe I should do this, uh, let Adam and I be the ones to tell you that uh, I don't think that you'll regret doing it. Thank you so much for joining us here on I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye. We'll see you next time. Thank you again to my guest, Adam Carroll. And until next time, Al and I send you our best sober vibes by saying goodbye alcohol and hello life. Much love to you all and peace.